Please mark your songbooks to 923 for the invitation song this evening. 923-923. want to say once again, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here with you tonight as we continue this gospel meeting through this week. Tonight we're going to look at the concept of commitment. And I chose to talk about commitment this evening because it relates in many ways to what we talked about this morning. This morning we discussed the pearl of great price and Jesus' teaching in Matthew the 13th chapter about what should really be the number one thing in our life and that being the kingdom of heaven, that being the church, that being our salvation, that we prioritize our spiritual life above our physical. And we looked at some reasons why. That it starts and ends with salvation. That we're, we have a better life when we follow the moral standard. We have a better family and stronger family when we follow that structure. That we're given a community of church family that are there to support us and to love us and to help us. And that it gives us a spiritual view on life that can carry us through the hardships that we face. But I'm going to look this evening at what it really means day in and day out. To make those choices to make the kingdom of heaven the pearl of great price. Because that's an easy thing to recognize in theory... It's an, it's an easy thing to know and to say that we should do, but it's much harder day in and day out. It's much harder on a Thursday in the middle of the week to make the decisions and the choices necessary to show that commitment to putting Christ and his church first. And so I want to look at Webster's definition with, uh, with you real quick on this word commitment and what it means. There's a few different ways that Webster defines this word. It says an agreement or pledge to do something in the future, especially an engagement to assume a financial obligation at a future date, something pledged, or the state or an instance of being obligated or emotionally impelled. And I want to look at that 1A and 1C and sort of make a combination of those definitions because I believe that commitment is really twofold. One, it is an agreement. It is a stated purpose, an agreement or a pledge to do something. But that's not where commitment ends, is it? Because we can pledge to do things all day long. But what does it take to really, really fulfill the commitment or that pledge? It takes the action. It takes that being obligated or emotionally impelled to carry it out. And that's what we as Christians need to have each and every day. That we wake up and that we feel that spiritual and eternal obligation to Christ. That we make those small and large decisions because we are committed to the cause of Christ. So I believe commitment really is making a pledge to do something and taking the dedicated action to fulfill it. And so it's easy as we talk about the pearl of great price and making Christ a priority. It's easy to make that pledge and to say this is what we're going to do. And we're going to live for Christ and he's going to be our priority. But it's much harder to take the dedicated actions to fulfill that pledge. And so I want to visit with you a little bit tonight about that idea. Abraham Lincoln said, Commitment is what transforms a promise into reality. Without commitment, a promise is just a promise unfulfilled. But that commitment is what allows it to be turned into reality. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now there's sometimes you read verses and passages in scripture that should make you pause and should make you go reread that because of the seriousness with which Jesus speaks. And I think when he talks about people not being fit for the kingdom of God, that's one where we need to take a pause real quick and say, what is Jesus really saying here and what is he teaching? He says, he who puts his hand to the plow, who starts the journey, who starts the work, but then looks behind him, but then looks back, 
goes backwards towards those things they were doing before, stops plowing forward and moving ahead, but turns aside or turns behind, Jesus says that kind of person is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so as we consider that in our spiritual lives and how that applies to us, I want us to know a few things about commitment that are important. One, commitment is not inherently a virtue. The right kind of commitment is a virtue, but we can be committed to all sorts of stuff. There's a story in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you recall your Old Testament history, there where the prophet Elijah has come up against these 450 prophets of Baal. And these prophets essentially, or Elijah rather, challenges these 450 prophets to a duel of sorts to sort of decide whose God is real and genuine. And so they decide that they're going to both build altars, they're going to both sacrifice a bull on these altars, and they're going to call out to their gods, the 450 prophets to Baal and Elijah to Jehovah God, and they're going to see who answers. And Elijah says, whoever, whichever God answers by fire will know he's the true and living God. And so these prophets go first and they build this altar and they sacrifice their bull on it and they spend all morning and afternoon calling out to Baal over and over and over calling out to him and you know what happens not a thing because Baal's not a real god he's a false god and so no fire rains down from heaven the sacrifice just sits there on the altar unburnt and Elijah even begins to mock them at one point and say well maybe your god is he's on vacation this week you know or, or he overslept and didn't get up when his alarm went off and he mocks them a little bit and then it becomes Elijah's turn. And Elijah ups the ante. Not only does he build an altar and put the sacrifice on top of it, but he also pours water over it. He builds a moat around it, fills that with water, soaks the whole thing down. And then Elijah is going to take his turn. And of course, we see the power of what God does when he is honored as the true and living God. And that sacrifice is, um, is accepted and God sends that fire. But I want to pay attention to a verse that happens here, something that we see about these 450 prophets in the midst of them calling out to Baal to rain that fire down. Pay attention to what it says in verses 26 and 28. It says, And they took the bullock which was given them and they dressed it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. Verse 28 says, And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. Were these prophets committed? Well, I'd say those actions show commitment, wouldn't you? They cut themselves. They harmed themselves to try to show that they were serious and worthy and honoring Baal and seeking for that fire to rain down from heaven. Of course, Baal being a false god, nothing happened. But I just want us to recognize that you can be committed to the wrong thing. These 450 prophets of Baal, their commitment to Baal did not, was not inherently a virtue. What was virtuous was Elijah's commitment to the true God and proving that God Almighty, Jehovah God, really was the one and true God. And so while commitment is not inherently a virtue, commitment that is godly is. And our commitment must be God-focused. 2 Timothy 2 verse 22 says, Flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. That word follow there, to pursue, to go after these things, these things of righteousness and faith, these spiritual things. That must be the focus of our commitment, as we mentioned this morning. And I also want you to know that godly commitment is all or nothing. And this is where it gets hard and this is where it gets tough. Because sometimes we want, to, we want to serve those two masters, don't we? We want to have one foot in and one foot out. Or we want to walk as close to the line without maybe quite crossing the line, but we just kind of want to go to church and 
and check it off, do the things we know we have to do, but then we wake up Monday and we go back to our, our life and we don't really think about church and we don't think about spiritual things as much. And it's real easy to fall into that concept where we're committed but not really where we make the pledge, but we don't really follow it up with the actions day in and day out. And I just want us to understand that that godly commitment we're talking about this evening, it's an all or nothing proposition. Revelation chapter 3, 15 and 16, Jesus says, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my, out of my mouth. God wants us to be on fire for him, we can put it that way. But ultimately what he wants is for us to just choose and quit trying to straddle the line. He wants us to be committed. He wants us to really say, not only are we going to make the pledge, but we're going to follow it up with our actions. So let's apply this idea of commitment to our life. And let's start with our personal life. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 10, the scripture says that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So I want to talk to you for a minute about this concept of excellence. We have an opportunity in everything that we do, whether it be with our family, it be in our jobs, it be personally with our goals and things that we're trying to achieve in life. We have an opportunity to set a standard for ourselves, do we not? And some people take the, the idea of a standard and they say, well, if I set the standard down here, I'll for sure meet it, right? Because I've set it really low. If I set the standard way up here, it's going to be a lot harder to reach. It's going to take a whole lot more work, a whole lot more effort to get there. But this scripture talks about approving things that are excellent, shooting for things that are top notch, that are the very best that they can be. And I want to think about for a minute how that can apply to our Christian life. As we seek to be the very best Christians that God has called us to be, not to set our standard at mediocre, not to set our standard at what's the bare minimum that God has called me to, but what are those excellent things that I can do in life that will show that commitment to Christ? Commitment to excellence means controlling our actions day in and day out. And let's talk in real terms for just a moment about on a personal level. All of us struggle. All of us face temptation. All of us face the desires of the flesh at times and the desire to fall into sinful activities. But we can control in large degree the temptations that we face, or at least to some degree, by choosing where we go, the people that we're around, who we associate with, where we associate with them. And when we make those wise decisions, it can help us to control the actions that we carry out. When we don't think about those things and we don't plan for those things, we can find ourselves in situations where we lose control and we end up doing something that we know we shouldn't have done. And that can be a struggle that's hard to get out of in our life. It's easy to continue that cycle of sin and continuing to fail and fall over and over again. And I just want you to know what God is calling us to is excellence. And will it be difficult? Yes. Will it take dedication that maybe we've not ever put towards anything before? Maybe. But it's worth it as we talked about this morning. There are so many blessings to that level of commitment. Think about with your family. We can train up our children to know how to discipline themselves, to know how to control their own bodies, or we can allow our children at too young of an age to know how to make those decisions to decide for themselves what they want to do and what feels good and what's right and all that. But as parents, I think we've been called to excellence. We've been called to train up our children in a godly way to show them how to control their own actions in their own bodies. When it comes to children, and we're still, we still have young kids, and so we've got a long way to go on the parenting journey. 
I'm by no means putting myself as an expert in parenting at all. But we've learned some things over these last eight years of being parents. And one of those is that parenting is tough and it's hard. But kids need to be told what's right and what's wrong. Kids need to, to be given boundaries. They need to be given rules. A child left to himself will bring his mother shame, right? Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. We can think through all of those different scriptures. The reality is kids need to be guided. They need to be taught. They need to be taught how to control their actions. That some things are wrong. And it's okay to call wrong, wrong. And that's not a popular thing in our society today to do or to say. But there are wrong things and there are right things. And our kids need to know there are wrong things and there are right things. And we need to teach them what those things are. And teach them not only to do it because mom and dad said so, but to do it because it's the right thing. And because it's what God said. Because it's excellence. And that's what we're shooting for. And that's what we're building our family towards. Is excellent things. And so not only in our personal life and not only in our family life, but in our church life as well. That we should control every action to the best of our ability to make sure that it is conforming itself to the image of Christ. But you know, it's not just our actions, our day-to-day -day choices, the places we go, the people we're around, the words that we say. It's not just those things that we need to control. It's also our mind and our thoughts. Paul said, uh, speaking in, in 1 Corinthians about our thoughts, he said that we ought to bring every thought under the obedience of Christ, to take it captive and bring it under that obedience to Christ. Jesus taught, as he was uh, preaching in Matthew chapter 7, he taught that there's a higher standard, right? He said, you've heard that it said, don't commit adultery. But I say unto you, not to look at a woman to lust after her. Because the person who has looked at a woman to lust after has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus has raised the standard to include not only our physical actions, but our thoughts. And a commitment to excellence and saying we're going to be committed to Christ and we're going to seek those things which are excellent means that I'm not even going to allow my thoughts to be sinful. I'm not even going to allow my thoughts to betray Christ. There's a brother at home that uses a, a phrase and he, he said this for the first time when I was young, at least that I remember hearing and it stuck with me and he said it a few other times, but he said, thoughts are like birds. He said, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head. He said, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. He said, you can't keep a thought from popping into your mind. You're going to have thoughts, right? All of us have thoughts into our brain that may not be right, may not be good. He said, but you don't have to let it stay there. You don't have to dwell on it. You don't have to let it find a place to reside inside your mind. And so as you consider how you use your thoughts and your mind this, this evening, I would encourage you to shoot for excellence in those things. And when something enters your mind that's not right, whether that be an unkind thought toward another person, or that be feelings of lust in a situation that's ungodly. That you would shoot those things out of your mind. That you'd get rid of it. That you'd turn it loose. That you'd take it captive. Bring it under the obedience of Christ and say, is this excellent? Is this something that shows my commitment to Christ or not? And if it's not, it's gone. And I'm not going to dwell on it. And I'm not going to walk down that path. A commitment to excellence also means controlling our attitudes. You know, there's a story in the Old Testament of Moses, if you remember the children of Israel. I kind of feel sorry for Moses in this because it seems like the children of Israel constantly were whining and complaining about stuff. And so it would have had to be difficult to be their leader at times. But if you remember at one point, they're whining and complaining about being thirsty. And God had given Moses a way to provide water. And he had told Moses to speak to a rock and that God would provide water for the people. What did Moses do instead? Do you remember? Moses took his rod and he looked at the people and he said, 
Here now, you rebels, must we provide water for you? And then he smacked the rock twice. And I just kind of imagined it in my mind that he's, he's smacking it kind of as hard as he can. Because I imagine he's frustrated. But Moses made a mistake there. He lost control. And instead of doing what God had asked him to do and speaking to the rock and allowing God to provide the water that he had promised, he, Moses did a couple of things wrong. He lost control, disobeyed what God said to do by striking the rock twice, but also took credit for providing the water. Called them rebels and said, do we have to provide you water? And that loss of emotional control, that loss of a good attitude, caused Moses to not be able to enter into the promised land. There were some serious consequences for that. Have you ever lost control? Have you ever had an improper attitude? I'm willing to wager that all of us in this building at some time or another have. Even the most even-keeled, laid-back people, normally at one time or another, have lost control. And some of us have more difficult time with that than others. Some of us have to work very hard to try to maintain the right kind of, uh, the right type of attitude. And to not allow frustrations to get to us. To not allow those things to cause us to lose our control over our emotions. But striving for excellence means we're committed to that. It means in our marriages we're committed to not losing control. It means that being excellent is not screaming and yelling at my spouse. It's not beating my kids because I'm angry and frustrated at them. That's not excellence. Excellence is taking the spiritual approach. And if I begin to lose control, I walk away and I take a breather. Because I know that's not right. And we're not going to do that. And then we wait until we can have a good conversation, a godly conversation without that loss of emotional control. Or when it comes to children, that means we may wait. We may tell them to go wait for us and we cool down before we go and we discipline them. Because disciplining children is important. But when you react out of frustration, you're not really disciplining them or teaching them the right things. What they need to understand is there's a consequence for the action. Not that mom or dad lost control. Strive for excellence in your attitude. Commitment to excellence means being spiritually focused. It means committing to reading scripture each day. To putting the word in your heart and allowing it to be that lamp that guides your path. It means your prayer life is strong. That you have a constant communication with God. Whether that be before the dinner table, before you eat. Whether that be on your own in your personal time or as a family or with your spouse or at church. But that you're committed to spiritual things like prayer. And that that's an active part of your life. That's being committed to excellence. It's making decisions based upon the spiritual implications and not the physical ones in your life. That's being committed to excellence, being spiritually focused. It means living with love and compassion. Jesus said that that's how people would know that we are his disciples, by the love that we show to one another. Being committed to excellence means making sure that we're treating everyone, not just our family, not just our friends or our favorite people or those that we jive with the best, that we treat them well, but that we're treating everyone those that we respect, maybe those that we don't. Those that it's easy to show honor to, those that it's difficult to. That we're committed to showing everyone love and care and compassion. And remember that Jesus taught even our enemies that we should love, that we should pray for, and that we should think good, godly thoughts about. 
Being committed to excellence means always doing what's right, no matter what the situation is or how hard that may be to do. There may be situations that you're in, as we mentioned this morning, where it takes sacrifice to do what's right. It may mean giving something up in the process, but we ought to be willing to stand up and to do what's right, no matter what. That's a commitment to excellence. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. I want us to understand something about this Christian journey. We talked about the moral standard that God gave us. We've talked about the, the spiritual things like reading scripture and knowing God's will, knowing his word, and then applying those things to our life. I want you to consider this. If we're striving for masteries, okay, if we're in a competition, if we're in a race and we're trying to be crowned the winner of that race, are we going to be the winner? Are we going to receive a crown at the end of that race if we cheat? Nope. That's the point of this verse. Is if you're striving for masteries, you're not going to be crowned unless you strive lawfully, right? Unless you follow the rules. What we're on as Christians is a journey, is a race in our Christian life towards heaven, right? And in order to be crowned, and in order to receive that crown of glory that's waiting for us as Christians, we have to follow the rules. The reality is there are rules to follow. And no, it's not like the Old Testament where there's a literal list of, of, you know, thou shouts and there's 613 laws that we have to follow. It's a little bit different, but there's teachings, there's principles, there's precepts in the Old and New Testament that are important for us to know and to follow. I want to tell you a story about a man named Fred Lors. In August of 1904, the city of St. Louis hosted the first ever Olympic Games, not the first Olympic Games, but the first Olympic Games on American soil. In those Olympic Games, a man named Fred, Fred Lors signed up to compete in the, at that time, what was a 24.8 mile marathon. He was a runner. Now this marathon course consisted of dirt and rocky roads. It included seven hills that were between 100 and 300 feet high. It was a treacherous course. There was traffic, there were people walking through it. It went through town, all sorts of stuff. Uh, very interesting when you kind of look at it. Uh, cars also carrying the athletic coaches were following along the runners and they're kicking up dirt and dust that these runners are breathing in. Fred Lors was one of the run runners there, and as they started the race in that marathon, he took an early lead. He was doing very well. But by about the nine-mile mark, his legs began to cramp, and he began to be passed. And other runners were passing him, and they began to win the race. And so what Mr. Lors decided to do was to jump in one of the cars that were running along the path. And he jumped inside, and for the next 11 miles, he, ran inside, or he, he sat inside that car as it drove him the next 11 miles of that race, passing the other runners and regaining his lead. Now, at mile 20, he jumped out of the car and began to run again. And he showed up at that 24.8-mile mark. He ran through, and he was the winner. Alice Roosevelt, who was then President uh, Theodore Roosevelt's daughter at the time, put the winner's wreath around his neck. And she went for the gold medal and was about to put it around his neck and crown him the winner of the race when some of the people who had seen his cheating exposed him. And he was, the crowd began to boo instead of cheer and they removed the medal and removed the winner's wreath and he walked away in shame because of his seeking to cheat the games. Now Mr. Lors found out exactly what Paul is talking about here in 2 Timothy 2 verse 5. A man who is competing for masteries is not, is not crowned unless he strives lawfully. You don't win a race by cheating. And we're not going to win the ultimate race of life and achieve that home in heaven by being half in and half out. 
by saying all the right things and making the pledge to be committed, but not following through with our actions. We can't ride in the, in the, uh, in the car on the sidelines and cheat our way through to heaven. It's not going to work. We're not going to be crowned the winner. In this race of life headed towards heaven, we have to be willing to actually put in the work as Mr. Lors was unwilling to do. Are we committed to God's standard in our life? Now I want to take a church view of this for a few minutes and talk about godly commitment when it comes to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We are told here to abound in the work of the Lord. Commitment to the church and abounding in that work that the church is seeking to accomplish ultimately and first of all means being here and being a part. It means being present. If you're familiar with the, the VCP analogy, the visibility, credibility, profitability concept, profitability is where we want to get to. In order to get to profitability, we have to have credibility. We have to be credible. And in order to be credible, we have to be visible, right? We have to be present. And not visible in a prideful way or in a fake way or a hypocritical way, but we have to be here and be involved. If we want to ultimately get to the level of profitability, which means souls are being saved, the church's mission is being accomplished, families are being impacted and strengthened, and overall our congregation is growing and is seeking to glorify Christ. If we want to be that kind of a church, we need to have families and individuals, individuals who are committed to being here, to being a part of it, to not being absent when the church is seeking to fulfill its mission, but choosing to be a part of that work, to be involved, not just to show up on Sundays and check the box and say, I was present, but to be involved, to truly say, what can I do to further the mission of Christ? And I want to encourage you as a member of this congregation this evening, if you've not been involved in the work of this church, in its mission to share the gospel, and its mission to worship God and to strengthen the families of this congregation, and if you've not spoken to your elders in a while and asked them what you can do to help in that mission, then go do that. Ask them what you can do. Because I promise you, we are all better off when as many people in our congregations as possible are saying, what can I do to help the work of the church? What can I do to strive for excellence as a congregation and to help us as a congregation strive for excellence? We don't need congregations where only 10% or 20% of the congregation is doing all the work. We need congregations where 100% of our members are doing the work. But too many times in both secular organizations and in churches, it seems like there's a small group that does at least 80 or 90% of the work that needs to be done. And I don't know that that's the case here, not saying that's the case here. What I'm telling you is that's commonplace and it doesn't need to be commonplace. And what we need as congregations of the Lord's church is for everyone to be involved. You have a talent, you have an ability, you have something that you can do to help the work of the church. Have you discovered it yet? Do you know what that is? Talk to your leadership. See what you can be involved in and what you can help with because I promise you there's plenty of work to be done. And be consistent. It's easy sometimes as a church member to start and get on fire and say we're going to do this and we want to be involved and we're going to lead this and we're going to help with that. And then we go a few weeks, we go a few months and then ah, trails off. And we fall back into that level of not really being committed, not really taking the dedicated actions to fulfill our pledge to strive for excellence. And I want to encourage you to be consistent. 
That's going to help the congregation as a whole. It's going to help all of us as individuals, as families, and as churches. When we have 100% of our group choosing to be present, to be involved, and be consistently a part of the work that's going on. I want to encourage you as members of this congregation to be here and be involved and be consistent so that you can encourage others. You know, a huge part of what we're supposed to be doing when we come together, not only in worship but in fellowship opportunities and other things, is to encourage one another. Is that not what Hebrews 10, 34 and 35 says? That we forsake not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is? But that we're here, why? To exhort one another, to encourage one another as we see the day approaching. What is that day? That day when Christ is to return. That day when all of us are going to face judgment. That day is coming. And sometimes we need encouragement. Talked a little bit about that this morning as well. But we need to approach our church attendance and our involvement less from the standpoint of, what can others do for me? But more from a what can I do for others? How can I encourage someone else today? Now it's only natural that we come to church sometimes needing to be encouraged and uplifted ourselves. And all of us are faced with those situations and it's good to have a church family to encourage us. But we also need to give back. We also need to show up thinking, who can I encourage today? Who can I talk to that I've not talked to in a while? Who can I ask how their life has been? Who can I make it a priority to, to take out to lunch or to invite over to my home? Who can I encourage today? And if we have a congregation of people looking for who they can encourage, who they can help, who they can support, what an amazing group of people that would be. I want to encourage you to be committed to the church in the sense that not only are you present, involved, and consistent, seeking to encourage others, but also seeking to, see, to serve the needs that others may have. And that takes a level of work that sometimes we're not used to. Because the reality is when it comes to church work, there are projects. There are people that need a lot of help. There's nothing wrong with that. All of us need help sometimes. But you have to get your hands dirty sometimes. And that may mean, as we mentioned today earlier, going to someone's home and packing all of their stuff up for them. It may mean going and mowing someone's lawn. It may mean going to the store and picking up some groceries that they need. It may mean a variety of other things. Cooking them dinner uh, when they've been sick or they've suffered a, a loss. Whatever those things may be. Visiting them in the hospital. Serving their needs. Because you know what you're not doing when you're thinking about how can I serve other people? You know what you're not doing? Thinking about how you can serve yourself. And that's a commitment to excellence. When you start putting others before yourself. And you start seeing that as a priority. I want to encourage you to be committed to the church, not just in being present and involved and consistent, seeking to encourage others, getting your hands dirty, working to serve the needs of your fellow church members, but also in seeking to impact the lives of the community around you. And just as we need 100% of our congregates involved in the work here and in worship and in strengthening families and in Bible studies and all of those things, we need 100% of our membership dedicated to the concept of evangelism as well dedicated to the concept that my salvation really is the most important thing that has ever happened to me. And if it really is that, then I'm going to seek every opportunity that I have to tell people about it. I'm going to seek every opportunity I have to share that great message with the people, especially that I have relationships with and that I have the ability to sit down and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. It's very important. And yet too often, we don't take those opportunities. But that's a commitment to excellence. Being present, being involved, 
being consistent, encouraging others, serving others, and seeking to evangelize others. I believe that and more that we could talk about shows that abounding in the work of the Lord. And it shows what that godly commitment in our church life really means. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, Paul said, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. You know, as you read through Ephesians 6 and you read about that armor of God and all the things that we're supposed to put on ourselves and be prepared to face Satan and the darts that are coming and all those things, we think about withstanding in the evil day, having done all to stand. We think about that idea of being fully prepared and committed. I want to tell you another story. This story is about a man named Desmond Doss, and you may recognize this man's name. There was a movie a few years ago called Hacksaw Ridge that was based on his very real story. But I want to tell you the real story about this man, Desmond Doss. In April 1942, uh, this man, Desmond Doss from Virginia, joined the United States Army. After the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, he decided that he wanted to do whatever he could to serve his country. But because of his faith and his own personal convictions, he signed up as a conscientious objector, choosing to not carry a weapon. He refused to carry an army, uh, to carry a rifle, even though he was assigned to a rifle company. Uh, he chose instead to become an army medic. He was ridiculed by his fellow officers and his superiors for that choice not to carry a weapon. And yet, over and over again, he proved himself by fearlessly running into harm's way and helping the wounded soldiers during the battles that he fought. But in 1945, there was one particular battle. Doss's company was among those who were trying to overtake Japan's last defense outside of its homeland. It was the island of Okinawa. After multiple attempts, they finally secured the top of this cliff that was known as Hacksaw Ridge, and Doss was with them. But they unexpectedly encountered a Japanese counterattack that was very vicious, and two-thirds of the army, or the company that was there on top of that cliff, didn't make it back down. The retreat was sounded, but only about a third of them made it back down the ridge. But Corporal Doss refused to listen to the retreat order. He ignored it. And over and over again, instead of climbing back down that ridge to safety, he ran back into the firefight and he grabbed wounded soldier after wounded soldier and brought them to the edge of the cliff so that they could be lowered down and potentially saved. And on that day, Corporal Doss saved 75 people's lives because of his refusal to quit and refusal to stop and leave them there. He knew that they were in danger. He knew that they were bleeding and dying. And he went again and again and again attempting to save them. Later that year, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And there's a picture there of President Harry Truman putting that Medal of Honor around his neck. He's the only conscientious objector to ever win that highest award for valor and courage. I just want us to think about that and apply that spiritually for a second. Are we that committed to our mission? You know, Mr. Doss showed a level of commitment to there that was beyond anything that most of us probably can really imagine or relate to. And no matter the bullets that were flying, no matter the dangers that existed, no matter what might happen to him, he chose again and again to rush towards those that needed saving and to choose to try to help them. You know, being committed to excellence when it comes to church work and abounding in the work of the Lord, it means putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations sometimes. It means facing rejection sometimes. It means we might have people that ridicule us. We might have people that refuse to listen. We might even lose relationships because we're trying to evangelize and share Christ with somebody that's not interested. But you know what else it will mean? It will mean that there will be some people that you are able to impact 
that do listen, that do want to study the Bible, that do want to hear about the blessings of Christ. And you'll have opportunities beyond what you might be able to imagine today when you choose to be committed to the concept of the church and the mission that Jesus has given it. And when you get involved in that, it changes you. And it can change the people around you. And we can be a part of saving the world around us. We can be a part of bringing our nation, bringing our state, bringing our town or our city or our community or our neighbors, however big or how small that scale is, that we can be a part of bringing them to Christ and showing them and teaching them and telling them the greatest story that's ever been told. Are we committed to that? So as we wrap up this evening, I want you to remember that godly commitment means choosing to strive after excellence. It means not settling for mediocrity. Where have you placed the bar for yourself? What about the bar for your family? What about the bar for your congregation? Can you do more? Can you raise that bar and choose to strive after excellence in your personal life, in your family life, or in your involvement with the church? Godly commitment means choosing to serve God and others, not self. One of the hardest things for us to actually apply and live is that concept of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following after Christ. But when we choose to serve God and place God and others before ourselves, there will be blessings that we can't even imagine that we'll find in that. Givers and those that love and show care to others are more satisfied, they're more joy-filled, they live happier lives. Not only because of the lifestyle that they've chosen to live, but also because those blessings come back. When you're the type of person that gives, it will be given to you. And that's a natural part of just being people. When people know that you care about them, they're more likely to care about you. When people know that you will listen to them, they'll probably listen to you more easily. And when we'll focus on building those relationships and serving others instead of ourselves, we can have an impact in their lives. Godly commitment means choosing to share the gospel with the lost and being dedicated to that day in and day out. Godly commitment means choosing to keep going even when life gets tough. And godly commitment means choosing to stay faithful to God until death, remembering that we cannot cheat our way into heaven, that we cannot ride 11 miles of the race in a car and expect to be crowned the winner, but that we need to be dedicated today and every day of our life to running the race according to God's standards and God's rules. And when we do that, not only will we be blessed in this life, not only will we have a better life and a stronger family and stronger congregations here, but ultimately we will be crowned that winner and receive our crown of righteousness that Paul said is awaiting all those who love God and love the appearing of Jesus Christ. So as we close this evening, 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8, Paul said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And those are the words that all of us should seek to be able to utter at the end of our life whenever that comes. Whether it be tomorrow, a year from now, a decade from now, or 50 years from now. I hope that every day that we live, we wake up wanting to be able to say these words, not out of arrogance, but out of humility, and seeking to simply do our best every day to strive for excellence and be committed to the cause of Christ. Paul said, henceforth, 
There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. That's the day that I'm looking forward to. I hope it's a day that you're looking forward to. And I hope it's a day that we're committed each and every day towards reaching. Not with fear of going to hell, but with confidence. Boldly approaching the throne of Christ, knowing that we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we have spent our life dedicated to his cause. And when we're willing to do that, he has promised us that there's a crown of righteousness waiting. Are you committed to God in your life? Not just saying it, not just making the pledge, but are you following through with those actions? Are you striving for excellence in everything that you're doing? If we can assist you in some way this evening, whether it be through helping you to obey the gospel and baptism tonight, or helping you to restore a relationship with God, we would ask that you come forward, sit in a front pew as we stand and sing.